Hey there, Quiet Rebels. So before we jump into today's episode, I want to let you know that this is brought to you by my Ultimate Podcast Guesting Workshop Series. So if you'd love to be able to have the exact know-how to book yourself onto a line podcast to grow your business, this is the workshop series for you. This follows my Pitch With Purpose framework, which is the holistic process of podcast guesting. So you can really get a lot out of this visibility strategy that goes beyond landing X amount of interviews. So if you're interested in learning more, head on over to makeasign.com forward slash UPG to find out more. And now back to the episode. Hello, my lovelies. This is Make A Sign, your podcast guesting strategist and mentor, cat lover, and the proud host of the Quiet Rebels podcast. This is the place for experts on the rise who are finally ready to stop playing small and to start showing up as the leader they've always been. And contrary to what you might think, you don't have to be the loudest person in the room in order to be heard. You've always been the type to see things differently and you've always chosen another pathway if the one laid out in front of you just doesn't align with your way of life. You're not alone in this. So to help you on your journey, I'm bringing conscious conversations to the table with myself and guest experts who will help you with the inner work that needs to be done in order to make a positive impact on the world with what you do. I see you. And now it's time to hear you, my friend. So please welcome to The Quiet Rebellion. Hello, my wonderful Quiet Rebels. Oh my goodness, today's interview is going to be an amazing one. One, because it's with one of my dear friends, who I'll announce in just a second. And number two, we're talking about a topic that no one has ever touched on this podcast before. And that's all about kind of like really adapting to that adult learning style and how we can design our programs with content that's actually scalable and gets our clients results. So I can't think of anyone and I mean anyone who can talk about this better than my friend Cassie Reiter. So Cassie, welcome to the Quiet Rebels podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be on your podcast, Mike. This is very exciting. Yes. And I looked at the timestamp of um, when you originally submitted your form to be on this podcast and it was over three months ago. So we persevered. <laughs> I'm so happy. <laughs> yes. I think that's like what you do in business is you persevere until what you want to happen happens. So yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. And it's you know, it's been a long time coming, but I've been really excited for this conversation. And it's just around this time where in the online learning space that information products and group programs are only growing, right? But the thing is, we have seen some stats that a lot of these, while they may sell, they may not actually get the results that people thought they would. And I love that your work is all about just really kind of reverse engineering that that learning process, how people actually learn and so how we can become better trainers and teachers and facilitators of these programs and courses to actually help our clients get what they wanted. Absolutely. It's so important. So important. Absolutely. Yes. So I have to ask, how did you get into this? <laughs> because I know a bit of your background, but I'd love to kind of like hear about where you got started and how you kind of like evolved into and carving out your own area in the industry because not a lot of people actually talk about curriculum design and adult learning behaviors and styles so tell us all the things <laughs> yes absolutely so um gosh I don't even know well over a decade ago I went back to school and got my master's in education and I spent the next 
however many years, so many years in the classroom, and then um, moved on to training student teachers. And then we uh, had our son come along. And here's a a fun fact for anybody out there. Teaching is the least family-friendly job that exists because you have to show up for everybody else's kid, but you have to miss your own kid's stuff all the time. And I wasn't willing to do that. So I decided to stay at home. Um, and I still needed to make money. <laughs> so I was like, how can I do this? And then I was like, huh, I should start a business. <laughs> so I did. And, um, what that evolved into was me becoming a virtual assistant. And, um, I, I mean, it was a successful business by any, you know, stretch of the imagination. I, I was booked out. And I had a wait list and that was all within four months. And I absolutely hated it. I hated it. Not so amazing. All right. (laughs) Not so amazing. But it's like, this is one of the things that I've learned is like, there's all of these like things that, that are said out on the interweb, right? Like, (laughs) uh, like when, if you have a fully booked out business, that's a, a successful business. Once you have a wait list, that's great. And it's like, really one thing I've learned on my whole journey is like, you really have to get in touch with yourself and figure out what feels good for you and make your own version of success for yourself. But all of that being said, this is when I really got into like business development programs and started, you know, participating in group programs, participating in coaching and things like this to figure out what to do with this business because I needed to make it work. And, um, It was through that and also through the work I was doing as a virtual assistant, where I was helping clients, you know, put courses together um, Mm -hmm. on the back end. I was doing that kind of work that I was really starting to see like there's some there's some things that could definitely be improved, like about all of these learning experiences that I'm putting together. But that's not really my role. My role was just to like do the task of uploading the material. But as I was looking at it, I was like, hmm. And then being a participant in group programs, I often felt, I shouldn't say often, here's the one thing. I've always gotten something out of every group program that I've been a part of, 100%. There's always something um, that's helped me. And every group program that I've been a part of needed significant, like if I were to step in and, and think about how could everybody in this program have a better experience? I, I could have given multiple ways that the, the coach could have done that. And so as I was struggling to figure out my niche in the online world, I was having these experiences of pain, which I think we just talked about this before we started interviewing too. Yep, where in the green like, room. <laughs> or it's like, I was having these experiences of pain and frustration and irritation. And I was like, oh, it's because it's not that any of these coaches are doing anything like bad or wrong or malicious. They just don't know. Nobody is talking about this stuff. Nobody's talking about how do you actually design a program that helps people get from that beginning point where they enter to the end result. And not just like five people out of 25, but like 20 out of 25 minimum, right? Like we need 80 to 90% of the people going through our programs to be getting the results that we've promised. Otherwise, our promise is not a promise. promise. (laughs) Yeah, not a promise. It's not a promise. Um, and so then that led to the question about, well, how do people, how do these, how do people in the online market, you know, like business world where they're creating group programs, like how do these people even measure their, 
the success of their programs. And really most people that I talk to that are running group programs, or I talk to some people who are doing online courses, even though I don't agree with online courses, the majority of the time, they don't have a way to, to measure that. They hear a few good things from a few people in their program and they take those testimonials and they like plug those all over their marketing. And it, it creates this environment of like, I don't know, is this program really legit? Is this program really going to work? Because after a while, especially if you're in the B2B world, you kind of start getting a little jaded, like about Mm -hmm. the marketing that's being done. And so really helping coaches and, you know, service providers that are running these group programs develop those systems to really understand how their curriculum is working, how their program is working to serve people. Are people actually getting the results? Just because you think people are doesn't mean that they are. And so we have to move beyond our own perception of people's success and try and get some hard data, for lack of a better, more fun word (laughs) to really Mm. look at. So that is when I was like, well, I I guess I'll just go ahead and do this then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no one is. I am. (laughs) I guess this is what I'll do. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a really fun and interesting journey. Um, Really fun to try and find people in the internet world, the online business world that are doing the same thing as me and finding those folks and connecting with them. And I, that's when I started thinking about how do I really start, you know, igniting a movement around this idea that as much time as we're focusing on marketing, our services, our programs, we need to be spending at least equally the same amount of time on developing them and taking care of the people that are in those programs and really helping facilitate the results that we've promised them. And so I thought the best way to do this would be to have a, like to carve out a new role in the online industry of an online curriculum specialist. We have online business managers. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what an online business manager is, but they didn't when they started. Right. So I was like, okay, well, we're just going to start having online curriculum specialists and I'm going to train them. So I started a certification program and that's what, that's what I'm doing now. I'm running a certification program for virtual assistants, OBMs, basically online support professionals, the behind the scenes folks um, that can learn this skill of curriculum development for adults and then partner with business owners um, to help them design curriculum that actually gets the results that, that they're promising their, their clients. So I'm doing that and working with a few, very few one-on-one clients these days, which is lovely because that means I can give them all of my love and attention. And (laughs) that's what I'm doing. That's my story. All right. There's a lot to unpack here (laughs) and, (laughs) and I love it so much. And, um, where should I start? Cassie, where should I start? Uh, <laughs> there, was, there was a time where I did want to interject. I was like, oh no, but I should, I should let her like continue. <laughs> but I love how like you it's kind of like a side, um, almost like a side comment, but you just kind of like wedged it in there. But you said adult learning. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, we need to talk about this because what would you say? Like we, we always say, you know, when it comes to children and kids, that like they they're like sponges when, they're, especially when they're very young, right? So, mm-hmm. what happens to an adult brain 
in regards to like our learning style and our capabilities because for example languages they're much easier to pick up when you're young but people do say it's a lot harder to pick up a language when you're an adult so what would you have to say to that about like how that shifts as someone kind of like I wouldn't want to I don't want to say ages but like as someone grows up. <laughs> I mean, I think I think that ages ages is fine, right? Like I don't know. As we grow in years, um, so this is the thing. That's a lot nicer. <laughs> as we grow in years, um, so really, it's not that the function, like, it's not that our brain functions differently as an adult, right? It's that when you're a kid, you don't have all of the background garbage that adults going into a group program have. So for example, if I'm in a classroom teaching a child multiplication, they likely have no prior experience with multiplication that they are aware of. And so it's easy for me to introduce, it's easier for me to introduce a brand new concept to them. And they, it's just a different way of approaching learning. I don't have to teach them any, I don't have to help them unlearn anything right? They don't have anything that they're coming in, any type of multiplication baggage that they're bringing into the classroom, right? Um, And so there's been, there's like a lot of research that's been done about adult learning. And um, it's interesting because one of the like pioneers, I guess, he, he coined the concept of andragogy. So in education, we talk about pedagogy, which is like how children learn and how we would teach them, right? Andragogy is that for adults. It's how adults learn and how we teach them. And that term was coined by Malcolm Knowles and in like in the 70s. And what's happened since that time is that in the education field, we've learned that kids actually can benefit from a lot of the same strategies that he presented that adults can like thrive with in a, in a learning experience. And so what we've seen is like they, the way we can teach both of these groups of people is coming closer and closer together. Um, but the biggest difference is that adults are going to come into any learning experience with basically a bunch of information already in their head, a bunch of beliefs already in their head, a bunch of learning that may or may not support what you're trying to help them do in their head. And that is the challenge for adult educators is to get your clients, your, your students to you. And you can't tell them that it's wrong. Like, right. You can't tell them like, oh, that line of thinking isn't going to help you here. It's how do you facilitate them coming to that understanding on their own so that they can move forward? That's the real, like the big challenge of adult learning. Um, and then there's all sorts of research on neuroplasticity, which is, a, I, I mean, that's a big word, but it's really cool because it basically means our brains can adapt and change yep. at any, at any time, assuming there's no like physical damage to our yep. brains. Um, so the biggest difference that we need to really consider with adults is all of the prior learning that they mm. have coming into our program. Oh, this is so interesting. And I remember being really fascinated by neuroplasticity as well when I learned that in my biological psychology class back in uni. And I just thought, whoa, this is so cool. Like the ability to adapt means that, you know, nothing is determined, you know? And I think, um, you know, that, you know, that old saying, um, you can't teach a dog new tricks or something like that. 
And it's like, well, we're not dogs, first of all. And second of all, <laughs> we absolutely can. And so it sounds like you're just being able to kind of like work with what the adult already has in their brain, like their beliefs mm-hmm. and their past experiences, like kind of like literally meeting them where they're at and helping yes. them like navigate those beliefs and thought patterns that may be challenged with the education that's in front of them. Absolutely. Meeting, so meeting people where they're at. Like if we can talk just a moment about the online coaching industry, that is a lesson. That is a lesson I actually learned myself as a very young, recent graduate from my bachelor's program. And my bachelor's degree was in psychology. And immediately after that, I got a job in social work and I was working with um, parents um, who had children that were, you know, experiencing an emotional disturbance. And these parents were also at risk of having their children removed from the home. So there was a lot of parenting education that I was doing. And one of the things that one of my uh, mentors at, at the place where I worked told me when I became very frustrated, and I think this is something that every teacher needs to understand is you can't serve people from where you're at. You need to serve them from where they're at. You have to meet them where they're at. So I love that you just said that. It's, it's such an important thing because when we kind of like get people to be where we're at, we're just simply projecting what we think is best for other yes. people. When it's like, mm, if we literally think about it as languages, like you can't teach someone English who, in you can't teach a subject in English if someone doesn't know English. You literally need to speak the language that they speak very fluently. So it's very, it's a similar idea um, if we're not using the context of languages. Um, when it yeah. comes to a new topic, we need to speak to what they already know so that they can grasp it. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, this is so good. So what would you say are the biggest challenges that you've seen and experienced firsthand when like there's, so it looks good on paper, the sales page looks great, testimonial looks great. But when you're actually in these programs, what do you think is like the most common things that people trip up on when it comes to kind of facilitating adult education? Yeah, um, the the number one biggest thing is um, talking at people for like 45 to 60 minutes. Like this whole idea, like a, if you think like lecture style of teaching, no. Like if we could end that, that would be great. Um, (laughs) What we, so what we want to do, I joke and I'm serious. We need to have some direct, like I call that direct instruction. That's like where you're saying, make, Hey, this is how you do multi-step addition or like multi-step multiplication or whatever. Right. Like, and you give the process and then what you need to do is after you give a small amount of direct teaching, you need to give some time for supported practice. So this is like, how can we actually get people doing the work inside of this, the container? Because another difference between kids and adults that doesn't have anything to do with how they learn has to do with the responsibilities they have outside of your container, your learning container, right? Mm-hmm. An adult is much busier than a child. They have far more responsibilities than a child. So when they step outside of that learning container that you've developed for them, um, they're going into a world of responsibility and the learning that's taking place in your program might not be the highest priority out, you know, outside of your, you know, the virtual zoom room that you all show up together in. So if there's any way that you can take what they need to be doing, teach it to them quickly, 
by targeting only the essential things they need to know, and then design an experience for them inside of your program, inside of the very lesson that you're teaching, where they can actually practice or work on whatever you're teaching them to do. And that could look like dialoguing with a group. That could look like literally putting everybody on mute and saying, go write, you know, your next social post, like whatever you're teaching, right? It can look a million different ways. That's, and then coming back and asking what questions people have. Those questions are going to be so much better than any questions you will get because they will be based on actually trying what you've taught them. So you're going to learn right then and there in the moment. Did I teach? Was my teaching effective? And then you're also going to learn as the teacher, like, or you're also going to open up learning, excuse me, for the rest of the group, because when you're answering somebody's question, you're also answering multiple people's questions likely. So that supported practice is really, it's really important because it helps them actually get the work, whatever the work is kind of started inside with support and then moving to independent work, like outside of the group space. Like now, how do you take what we've done here and go apply it in the real world? with whatever mm. you're learning this for. So, okay. So um, what I'm hearing you say is basically like, they need to know the theory of how to ride a bike. Whilst they're with you, they need those training wheels. And when the lesson's over, they need to try it out for themselves, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like, that's such right. a, that's such a like, timely example because I have a toddler <laughs> who who is riding a tricycle and our neighbor gave us a bicycle with training wheels mm-hmm. and he's like I don't want to go on it and I'm like I'll stand right here with you right mm. we we need to help people move from that phase of anxiety which prevents any learning from happening to a space of curiosity about what could happen so if we can inside of a lesson help like them shift just that mindset about being anxious about this new learning, because if they leave a lesson or a call anxious about what you've just taught them, they will not do it on their own. I would nearly guarantee it. Most people will. Um, yeah, sorry. I'm getting, look, I get so passionate about this. Oh, no, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that, like, I don't want people to think that that was my, like my original idea. So, um, I first learned about this, um, model from uh, um, an educator who teaches teachers how to teach writing to young elementary students. Her name is Regie Routman, and she calls it the gradual release of responsibility. And this is also what's going to make your program scalable, is if you include a gradual release of responsibility into your program. Okay, well, I love that phrase. So can you tell us more about that? The gradual release of responsibility. Yeah. Absolutely. So I get questions from coaches and um, sort of writers who are running group programs all the time about like, why are people asking me so many questions? Like, like they constantly are asking me, is this right? Is this good? Is this okay? Is this what we're think like what we're expecting? And, and the reason that people are asking those things is because you haven't um, taught them. Yeah. You haven't taught them how to evaluate their own learning. You haven't, so let me, let me just break this down for you. You could teach me how to write a five paragraph essay and I could be like, okay. And I do the five paragraph essay, but I'm still feeling a little like not confident about it. So I'm still relying on you 
to help me. So if, so what we're doing is you're going to teach me a quick lesson about how to write a five paragraph essay. And I'm using these really basic examples because I think we can all kind of grasp onto them. So apply this. I don't teach people how to write five paragraph essays, but you're going to teach me quickly, you know, 10, 15 minutes, maybe 20. And then inside of our group container, you're going to say, okay, everybody, now I, you know, you have your topic in mind. We chose those last week. So now you're going to go ahead and get started writing your five paragraph essay. And um, I, I, we spend some time working on it. And then I come back and I'm like, Mika, I have a question. You answer my question, you answer people's questions. And they're like, okay, now before you leave, I'm going to give you this checklist or this rubric or something where you can evaluate. It's based on what I taught you today. And it's something that you can use when you get done with your writing to check and make sure that you like what you've done. And you can use this outside for any type of writing that you do where you need to write a five paragraph essay, blah, blah, blah. So you teach them how to use the rubric that takes further um, responsibility from you and puts it on them. Um, And then you ask for further questions and you let them go into the world and, and try it out. And then they'll come back with some more questions and that's great. And they might come back with questions about how to use the rubric and that's great. But the more and more we can get people relying on themselves and not on us is Mm. like the best thing. We want people to be independent, um, self-sufficient, like, and I say that not diminishing the fact that we all need community and that there is a definite need for support. But when we're talking about giving people the ability to go do things on their own af- after our program ends, that's why we need to give them the tools to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like I kind of went on a rabbit trail there, maybe no, farther I- away from the answer <laughs> to question. No, I'm really glad that you brought up that sense of um, independence because I had a guest come on, her name is uh, Johanna Bogart, and she talked about the, the toxic codependence that's mm. often kind of preached in the coaching industry, for example. Um, and we understand why um, some coaches may, whether they realize it or not, create a codependent relationship with the client. Because obviously, that means that the client signs on again and again and again, you know, increasing the the, the lifetime value of, of the customer. And um, I love what you said there because it just reminds me of, you know, the saying like, you know, they say teach a man, but I think teach a person. You can either give a person a fish, feed them for a day, or you can teach that person to fish and then feed them for life and it's I think it's just like that same um just that same principle here <clears throat> that we it's it's kind of like it's important for us to be able to equip our clients with skills that they can implement without us because it does create that sense of responsibility and, and independence and also the fact that they're going to feel like they can do it without you and that's a, mm-hmm. that's a good thing that's that moment of graduation <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah 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 I would extend that. I don't know. What, what is that? Is that a the teach, teach a person to fish thing? I can't think of what that is, but that little thing, thing, <laughs> that saying, <laughs> just <want> saying. <laughs> that little saying, there we go. That saying, I don't know why that word was escaping me. Um, I think that we would, it would serve us all well to also add one more step to that. That's never, ever really included. So <clears throat> you can give a person a fish and feed them for a day. Or you can teach a person to fish and they'll be able to feed themselves for a lifetime. But they can't do any of that unless they have the fishing pole. (laughs) We need to make sure they have the fishing pole also, right? So that's where it's like, 
So if I think about this in the coaching world, it's like um, maybe you're teaching, uh, maybe you're coaching people about how to deal with anxiety in the workplace. I don't know. I'm just totally making this up. And you teach them, you, you teach them all of these methods. And then it's almost like, actually, I'm going to use an example that I have personal experience with. So I, uh, I'm going to go on a little aside. I kind of do this, but I'll come back around. I promise. So I, a couple of years ago, decided I needed to stop drinking and I did not feel like very aligned with the AA model. Like it works for some people. It wasn't going to work for me because there was too many things that I just didn't feel like aligned. And so I went searching for other ways to like support myself in this journey of not drinking. And I found uh, Tempest Sobriety School, um, which is founded by Holly Whitaker. And one thing that she does really well inside of this program where she coaches people to become free of their dependence on alcohol is, you know, teaching them how to identify like what are the triggers, but then also giving a variety of strategies for dealing with those triggers and allowing people to choose which works best for them. So at the end of the day, now I walk away from that program. I have like, I think of it as, um, like a little doctor's kit, you know, like the old school doctor's kits that yeah, like the little briefcase. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. like, okay, I have my kit here. And like, what might be in that kit for me? So for me, if I get really overwhelmed at the end of the night and I really want a glass of red wine, it's like, well, I have different options now. I can go grab one of my million types of teas. If that doesn't feel right, I have other options available to me to support myself in what I really want. But she, but she taught me how to identify those things and then gave me options, strategies, tools, the fishing pool to deal with it when it came up. And so um, in the coaching type world, less than like the teaching type world, there there it gets a little muddled, but there's a definite difference between like a life coach, say, and like a strategist that's teaching you a very specific strategy. I don't know if that makes sense. Let me know if that's clear as water or clear as mud. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's clear to me. Um, okay. Is there is there any reason why you think it could be as clear as mud? Like, is there something that you want yeah. to kind of wrap up for yourself? <laughs> uh, I think we have a lot of people running around in the coaching world calling themselves coaches that aren't actually coaches, hmm. right? If you're teaching somebody a very specific skill, let's say lead generation, you're not a necessary, you will do some coaching for sure. You'll do some coaching but you're not a coach. You are a teacher. You are probably operated as a consultant or service provider prior to starting your group program. And now you're a teacher of that strategy or whatever that you're presenting to people. And I say all teachers will do some coaching. Not all coaches are teachers. So that's the way I think of it. Um, And when you step into a group program, can like, service model, whether you've been a coach or a service provider, whether you've been a coach or a consultant, you are now a teacher first and foremost. Yeah. And you are a coach second, which is why I I try to say group program and not group coaching program. I don't, Mm, I I have issues. I have (laughs) issues with the words coach could just be me. (laughs) I think there's a lot of nuances, um, you know, with the coaching industry and as someone who has, um, been trained as a coach even even I have issues <laughs> um, you know so I know what you mean you're not alone it's all good um, and for any coaches who are listening you know this is not something that's personal to you 
is something it's just patterns because we call out patterns not people yeah yeah exactly it's like I have a coaching certification too all right but I don't I don't think I've ever fully identified with the word coach Mm. I guess because I always am like trying to teach a strategy or something like my brain just works in that way Mm. but when we gather a group of people together into, into a container and we're leading them to a specific end, you, you will do coaching along the way, but you also need to teach them how to get to the end, I guess, which is why your first job is teacher, second job coach. Mm. Oh, that's so important. And we touched on it slightly earlier in the conversation. I really want to look back into it. It's about really designing a curriculum that's actually scalable because, you know, Uh, You and I have had a private conversation around my sustainable visibility incubator and um, about, I remember telling you what the curriculum involved and you're like, oh, that's great. And you also knew that I had three people who signed up for my first round. You're like, yeah, that's going to work for them, but maybe not for a bigger group. (laughs) So I'm curious um, to hear your thoughts about what do you feel needs to be taken into consideration to actually make a curriculum scalable for whether it's for one person or 10 people or 20 people, like what do we really need to take into consideration for that? Yeah. So um, I, I first want to say that not everybody wants to have a big scaled program and that's a okay. Like you don't have to, it goes back to like, what do you define as success? Some people will really want just a smaller, maybe five person container. That's okay. If that's what you want to do, you do you. Some people want to have a group program that they can have evergreen enrollment with and have hundreds of people in the group program. And to those people, I say, if you want that type of a program and you want people to have the support that they need to get the result that you're promising, you have to have a really solid curriculum because what you're going to need at that point are additional coaches to come in and, or teachers or whatever you want to call it. We call them coaches goes back to our recent conversation. Um, You're going to have to have additional facilitators come in and help guide people through that curriculum if you have that many people in your program. And what that means is that you, you can't, how do I say this articulately? So let's just use your, your program as an example. You had a few people in your program. I think of it like small group work when I was in a classroom. I would pull a small group of people together Five is like a great number for a small group. Inside of that small group, you can give those folks addition, like additional, like really high levels of individual support. Mm-hmm. You can really hear them and listen to them and ha- they can have more reliance on you for a longer period of time in a small group. If you're in a big group, people are not going to have as much opportunity to have reliance on you because uh, just sheer numbers, you cannot well, I mean, I guess you can, but you will want to die if you try to give a super high level of support to 20 people. So the question becomes, what do I need to give this particular client or this particular student as that would be the most supportive thing to get the result that they're they're after in my program? And then building that into the curriculum, meaning if that means more, you need more facilitators inside of your program, you need to hire more facilitators. If that means that you simply need like a checklist so that people can um, edit their own work 
or whatever, that's what you need. Like, I think when I think of this, I think of one of the clients that I had um, in the past that um, was having a lot of her clients come to her. She taught copywriting skills and she would have a lot of her clients come to her and ask like her to edit their work or things like that. And they hadn't even edited it themselves. Like they haven't even given it a once over. And it was so frustrating to her. And the only thing that we really did was she was done editing. So I was like, you know, she was already in the process of hiring some other people to do the editing for her. So that's a great step. Any task you don't like, you need to find somebody to do it. It doesn't mean you don't offer that as a part of your program. Like she still really wanted to offer editing as a part of her program because she found it very supportive and that that's what they needed to get the result. So instead of her doing it, which was driving her nuts, she decided to hire people to do it for her. So you need to think about what team members do you need to facilitate the results um, and provide the right amount of support. But the other thing that really helped for her, her editors to be giving the kind of feedback that she would be giving was to have a curriculum that we developed together and a checklist for editing that we developed together. And then her clients all use that checklist on their own work before they submitted it to an editor. Oh, very clever. I see where this is going. <laughs> right? Yeah. So everybody just needs to be on the same kind of playing, like playing field. Like if you have multiple facilitators in your program, you have to have a, a curriculum for everybody. So everybody gets the same kind of experience, the same opportunities in your program. Um, I have such mi- Listen, I, I love curriculum uh, because it gives a great guide. What we also need to remember is that we can't become very rigid with our curriculum. It's simply a yeah. guide because every group that comes through your program is going to be a little bit different. And this is where this is something that teachers talk about all the time. It's called differentiation. And this is where we need to take into account the differences between our learners. And it's not giving everybody the same thing, but it's giving everybody what they need. That requires a level of understanding of people inside of your program that most coaches don't have. It's, it's equity, really. It's it? equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember when I first learned, um, it was the, the easiest way that I'm, I'm looking at it right now, <laughs> my plant. Um, my mentor actually taught me um, equity in regards to plants that you can't give, I don't know, 200 mils of water to every single plant and expect them to grow at the same rate, even if they are in the same conditions, like, um, you know, the same room with the same amount of light, all that kind of stuff. The fact of the matter is each plant has a different set of needs than the next. And it's the same for people. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And this is is where, and I, I'm, I want to preface what I'm going to say with, I am not a DEI expert and I'm doing a lot of my own learning. And I think it is a continual process for anybody who's working with people in an intimate capacity, like teaching, um, that you be doing your own learning about issues surrounding equity in the teaching space. Um, But what I do want to say is that there's this trend and it's not just in the online coaching industry. It's in adult education and universities. It's in workplace trainings that happen where we tend to um, overlook 
the past experience that people have had or the past learning that people have had, especially if we're in an educational type setting and that learning hasn't been formal, that that's not good learning, right? So when we have people step into our containers, we need to be very aware um, that they've had a whole lifetime before they come to our program and everything that they've experienced is true to them. And we need to acknowledge and respect. It's true. My Siri keeps talking to me. <laughs> um, we need to acknowledge and respect um, that past learning and that past experience that they're bringing in. It does not mean that that it's our job to meet them where they're at. It's our job to understand and acknowledge and learn how we can support them best. It is not their job to figure out how to conform to some tightly constrictive structure that perhaps is built on systems that we've learned that might be filled with oppression anyways, right? Does I don't know if I'm making sense. Yeah, making complete sense. Um, but we really want to be like making sure that we understand the types of diversity that can come into our settings. And that could be not just learning preferences, but gender, um, sexuality, ethnicity and culture, like age, all of these things can come into our containers. And we, as the leader, need to be checking our own stuff, mm-hmm. making sure we're not assuming things and listening to what people need and honoring what they're telling us. And if you don't do that, you will break trust with people quicker than quick and they, and then it's over. Mm, ooh, I'm really glad that the conversation took this turn because um, the way that I see it is that everybody has their own lenses. Like I see it through lenses, mm-hmm. like, and, and the lenses could be, you know, experiences and just, your beliefs and your values, everything. And I I always see it through lenses. Like everybody has come in with a certain lens, thickness, lens, color, (laughs) lens, everything. And we need to see how they see the world. And that's our responsibility as a trainer, as a leader, as a facilitator, coach, whichever label you you are choosing for yourself. Um, It's important for us to kind of take off our own and actually be able to see it through theirs of how they may be perceiving the information that we're providing and the support that we're providing. It's like, oh, okay, how could this be like, you know, super helpful for someone, but maybe harmful to another. And it's something that we need to constantly be checking ourselves for because without knowing it, it can be causing harm. And so having that open conversation and setting expectations for people that you are learning and that you're willing to be, I wouldn't say challenged or, or anything, but like you're willing to have an open ear for what they might have to say. Absolutely. And, you know, we, at the beginning of our conversation, you asked me like, what's one thing that you see happening that's like a big, and like that happens pretty pervasively in the online coaching world is um, when we get into this, mindset and it's not okay listen if we're talking about past experiences most of us if you have been to university if you've been in any type of learning situation like that's formal learning and I include elementary school junior high middle school whatever high school in this you're in a position you've probably been taught that the teacher is the expert 
and they're delivering information to you who is not the expert. And I despise that model of teaching because even when I'm teaching third graders math, right? I could teach them how I think of multiplication, but if I allow them the opportunity to explore a problem and come up with their own solution, and then I, you go around the room and you're like, wow, I never would have thought of it that way, but hey, look, it got you where you needed to go. You can come up with multiple different ways to solve the same problem. And so I think it's almost like we need to stop being the expert. <laughs> like, yes, people came to us and we have some information and we can guide them. And we are there to support them and assist them in whatever ways that they've paid for us to do that. And how we do that is going to change based on their life experience. And what can we start learning from our, our students? What can we start learning from our clients? Because if you assume that you're not going to learn anything from your clients because you're the expert, wow, like <laughs> you're putting yourself in a real box and you're going to become irrelevant really quickly. Okay. Two things came up for me as you were saying this. Number one, the best teaching I've had is my French teacher from year seven, eight, and nine. No, seven and eight. She like, Mrs. Kelly, like you're the best teacher ever. <laughs> Not only was she kind and sweet, she managed to teach us French through rhymes. And I still remember, like it's been, oh, how many years has it been? Mm, it's been a good 16 years. I still remember the songs <laughs> that she <laughs> taught us. She taught us the alphabet and using the 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 background theme of Old MacDonald's Had a Farm. Uh-huh. Um, and same with the month of the year. And there was, a, there was this song that we all opened with, um, you know, at the beginning of the class. And I still remember it all. <laughs> and I was like, oh, gosh, I, I wish I could teach through song. That would be great. <laughs> okay. So here's the thing, though, Mayke, that's really, like, powerful about that and that everybody can take something from, is what that teacher did is they connected something they took a background experience that probably most people in your class had which is the song old mcdonald had a farm and they incorporated the new learning into past experience that you all knew so you don't have to remember how the new song goes you already know the tune you already know how the song goes you just have different words to learn but the Mm -hmm. cadence and the rhythm of that song that you already know so well can help you remember the things that you that are new Okay, I feel like I have to do this one. This one's not in French, but this okay. is again, it's it's the it's the same idea with the with the um, background song. So this is, I think, Pop Goes the Weasel, and this is for um, determining the area of a trapezium. So it goes half the sum of the parallel sides times the height between them. That's the way you work it out the area of a trapezium. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't know anything that you just said to me. <laughs> But I know the tune of Pop Goes the Weasel, right? Like, yeah. and if I had the back, the learning, the context for the information in that song, I, I would be like, I would remember it always then yeah, because I know the tune, right? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Hey, that's... and let's not be afraid to use silly things just because we're working with adults. Mm. Like, let that be a lesson to everybody that's listening to this. If you feel like there's something that people just need to know all the time, do something silly and ridiculous because it's going to get people in a different state of feeling, which is going to help their brain remember it easier. You know what? The amount of times I've showed a Pixar clip or um, referenced 
Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or a certain game. It's normally Pixar films. I always use them as an example. And then, uh, for example, there's this clip from this Pixar film called Onward. And spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched this yet. Um, there's a there's a scene where the younger brother who is inclined with magic, he needs to cross this this chasm, like this this cliff, basically, um, to get to the other side. So his brother is like there encouraging him and has got the rope like, you know, latched to him. It's like, oh, you got the rope, right? Yeah, cool. And then um, as he's slowly trusting in each and every step, he trips over every now and then, but he's trusting the step. And then the, the rope loosens, basically. And then so whenever one of my clients in the program, for example, um, they're taking those steps into the unknown because there's a lot of unknowns when it comes to visibility. Um, things that you just haven't touched before right and I'm like don't worry I got the rope and I just keep referring back to that thing and, just, and then even sometimes they, they say you got the rope right I'm like yeah I got the rope and the invisible net underneath you as well, <laughs> that you cannot see I got the rope and then there's a point where that rope loosens right and then I remember my client saying like don't let go of the rope and I was like don't worry I'll just find a way to wrap it back around you it's all good <laughs> and it just it solidifies in the head like we got the rope and I'd always bring that back up. And I'm like, like, can you see the other side? Do you need the rope on the other side to connect to you before you can let go of this one? And it's just really helped to kind of like, especially for my visual learners, I have a lot of visual learners, um, you know, in the space and it's just really helped for them to attach it to something. So yeah, rhymes, whether it's songs or if it's movie clips, they work. So that scene, first of all, my kid loves Onward. And so I've watched that show like no less than 10 million times. Um, and I know the exact scene that you're talking about. And that scene is also an excellent visual representation of um, the gradual release of responsibility. Mm. Right? Because what Ian needs is his brother. So like he needs the support of his brother, knowing that his brother's yes. got the rope. Yep. So he feels co- like comfortable enough to take the next step to take the next step. And pretty soon what happens is he's doing it on his own. He just doesn't really realize it, right? Mm-hmm. Until he turns around and then he's like, oh shit. <laughs> but he was still doing it on his own the whole time. So it's like, how can we have the rope so people feel confident that they can move and take the next step? And then how do we gently release that rope as they have more confidence and are doing it themselves? Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Now that's going to be like a mandatory thing that we pop into the beginning of the curriculum. (laughs) It's like, everybody watch this movie clip for the next two minutes. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I love that you already were using it. You like, you might not have had the words like. Gradual release of responsibility. No, I didn't have those words, but. But that's exactly what you were doing. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, this is so cool. Okay. So I'm sure that we can talk about like uh, movies Pixar rhymes all day and now I'm just thinking of that French song that's still in my head <laughs> <laughs> but as we start wrapping up here today um, I'd love for you to briefly touch on this sense of accountability who is mm. truly accountable for client results is it mainly us as a teacher or is it mainly the client because we know in the I'm gonna say it again in the coaching industry there's a lot of reframing and the shift of blame sometimes for a lack of results from the coach to the client. And also there's been the flip side as well. So mm-hmm. where's the fine balance in that? Like how much responsibility can we take without taking blame? Mm-hmm. 
So, um, I think it's important to know, like, first of all, the only person that can hold, like the only person that can hold me accountable is me accountability. And I, I think I learned this from a book called the 12 week year, which was kind of a meth book, but the point really stood out to me. Accountability is ownership. So Mm -hmm. I am accountable only to inform me as far as my personal results go. Right. With that being said, because there's also this thing where it can get frustrating as a teacher. If you're like, I'm giving all the support, I'm doing all the things and they're not doing, they're not putting in their part of the work to get the results. Right. So I understand that that can be frustrating. Um, And that's not a way to let ourselves off the hook as facilitators, because Mm -hmm. our job as facilitators is to understand how adults learn. And I'm going to give you five quick things really quick after I finish this thought about how adults learn and what we can do to facilitate that. Our job is to understand how adults learn best, develop a very intentional plan, a curriculum to get them there. And then provide support and feedback along the way. That means if you refuse to pop into a group and answer questions that people have inside of a Facebook group, you're not doing your job. That means if you refuse to look at something that somebody brings to a coaching session, if they're producing, like, if you're somebody who's coaching on like brand design or teaching on brand design or teaching on social media strategy or something like that. And somebody brings an example of something they've done and has a question about it. If you refuse to give them feedback on that, you're not doing your job. What, what that shows me is they have put in the work. They're doing the damn thing. And now it's your job to either give them the tool to self-evaluate if you don't want to answer it and give feedback or to answer it and give feedback, ideally both starting with you answering and giving feedback and then gradually letting them give their, get feedback on their own through a strategic tool that you've developed to help them do that. So our responsibility as the the teacher is to facilitate the learning process from the beginning to the very end. Every time you talk, I'm like, I'm just like looping back in my memory and like, oh, have I done this? Where could I improve? And there's, it's just really true. We need to be there every step of the way. Even if they don't need us, we still need to be present for when they do. Or somebody needs to be present, right? Like, and when we talk about scaling, this is where it becomes like, we need to let go of this idea of like, I'm the expert. I'm the only one that can support. If you have a really well-developed curriculum and you train your team on how that looks, they are now also an expert. They can help you. So it's also a matter of like, I think it sometimes is an ego thing. Like I'm the only one that can do this right. Like mm. <laughs> kind of a thing. And it's like, it's like everyone before they hire a VA, it's like, no one can do it as good as me. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I say these things and sometimes my husband's like, God, Cassie, you're getting a little preachy. I try not to be preachy. I'm getting very passionate. And I also want everybody to understand that every single thing that I'm talking about, I have learned through experience. Usually the kind that didn't feel so good for me, that then I had to learn and revise and grow, like learn, revise, grow. And it's a continual process. Yeah. Um, and we need to be developing that as teachers. You know, there's two types of, of expertise you need as a teacher. You need the content area expertise. So make hay for you, that's visibility. 
you also need the teaching expertise. How do you show up and lead people really, really well? Mm-hmm. Got to have both of those. And the development of both of those skills is really important. Absolutely. Freaking loopy. And because you opened the loop the, about the five things we need to know yes. about adult learning, like, yes. please close the loop. What are the five things? <laughs> okay. Yes. Here are the five things that we need to know. And this is, there's a, okay. These are five things that I'm getting from an author, Ralph St. Clair. Um, he wrote the mentor text for my certification program, which is creating courses for adults. Um, I've read lots of books about adult learning and I feel like his, to my knowledge thus far, I like his the best and they align with my beliefs the best. So I'm going to give you his, um, the first is that learning is a social process that's conducted in some way with other humans. Even Mm -hmm. if you're sitting on a beach, reading a book and you're thinking I'm learning on my own your understanding of language is very much linked to other people and social context. So we never are learning in isolation. Second thing is that people begin to learn by trying peripheral activities. So smaller activities that seem maybe not to be so linked up, I would consider those foundational. He uses the word peripheral. And then they move to more complex as they grow in confidence and see examples and models and things like that. So start at the basics. And my side note here is start more basic than you think you need to start. Make no assumptions about anything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, The third thing is that individuals are more likely to repeat actions um, that are associated with a reward, including the approval of peers. So I don't like to get very much into the behaviorist nature. I had a great conversation with a client in my certification program last week where I was like, oh, I still, I still have some behaviorism in me and we all kind of do as teachers, if we're looking to measure any type of outcome, because the only thing we can really measure is behavior. But if there is like a positive thing that's associated with an action, people are more likely to repeat it. Not always, but more likely. The fourth thing is that having some type of associated behavioral outcome is the easiest way to communicate and assess learning. So if I tell you, Meike, when you get to this end result, this is what it's going to look like. This is what you're going to be able to do. Then you'll know you've gotten there when you see those things happening or you're able to do the thing. So that makes it easy for you, for me to communicate to you what the outcome is. It also makes it easy for me to assess if you've met the outcome. There are a lot of types of learning that can't be measured by a, like a visible behavioral outcome. It doesn't mean that learning's not important at all. It's very, very important. But the easiest way to communicate and assess learning is by having some type of really uh, clear behavioral outcome. And then, and that also will relieve people's anxiety because they'll know what to look for. And the fifth thing is that uh, learning needs to be relevant. And when it is relevant to the learner, it's that when people learn the most and the deepest. I wonder why. Uh, oh no! I'm not, I wonder if that why the Harry Potter references kind of like <laughs> it landed so much because everybody watched Harry Potter and plant analogies and candles and <laughs> all those sorts yeah. of things. <clears throat> yeah. So relevant. So relevance here is um, speaking about like if something's not meaningful to you, you're not going to do it, mm-hmm. right? Like, listen. We all like to think we're different than three-year-olds. We are. 
And we're also not, right? <laughs> right? Like if my kid doesn't understand like the benefit of eating his vitamin in the morning, he's not going to do it. And it's not some type of internal motivation right now. He doesn't understand about like health and things like that. I'm teaching him that, but he's not doing it because of internal motivation. So my question, the question becomes then, how can I make this relevant for him? Hmm. How can I, what, what needs to happen so that he will do the thing that I need him to do? Um, so when you're thinking about how you incorporate those five things into your teaching and your curriculum, the first thing you want to do is encourage active learning. We'd already talked about that. You want to allow some control over learning. Anytime you can offer choice in your program, offer choice because no matter what you're teaching, there's no one right way to do it. And I will guarantee it. Yep. Three. Um, would be to connect learning to previous learning or previous experiences. That's exactly what your French teacher did. That's exactly what you're doing when you're talking about analogies and things like that. The fourth is to encourage collaboration and connection. So we need to really facilitate people interacting with each other, Mm -hmm. with the material we're teaching and with us um, throughout our program. And then the fifth um, is that we need to acknowledge and respect that past learning experiences and life experiences are all valid and valuable inside of the container that we are holding for people. Ooh, mic drop at that last point. Absolutely. Okay. Kathy, there's like, there's so much that you have covered in this interview today and I am both in awe and also... I'm like, where do I start though? (laughs) (laughs) So as well as listening back on this interview for anyone who's reached this point, um, where would you advise people to start? Just one thing. One thing. My one thing. Oh gosh. Um, I really would love if everybody examined their program promise and understood how they were going to measure if people meet that program promise. And then also looked really carefully at who the people are that belong inside of their group container and having really specific qualifiers for those people. I would love for us to stop enrolling people because they can pay. That's not a good enough reason to enroll somebody in your group program. Then, you know, think of yourself like Harvard or Yale. What are your qualifiers, (laughs) right? What do people need to have in place to find success on the journey you're going to lead people through? Mm-hmm. And if you have, if you can get those two things really clear, that's going to be the best place to start. Yeah, I couldn't agree more because I've, I've seen the application for your certification program and it was intense, but in the best way of like, oh yeah, that you were so clear with what you wanted from someone before they applied. And I can only imagine that everyone who did join, you know, they're definitely going to get results because you're the pro <laughs> and like you know the at the curriculum i'm creating a specialist curriculum to get certain results and even just very clear and upfront with expectations yeah and i think that that's just a good thing like let's all set boundaries and expectations yes let's please it'll make, it'll make life <laughs> so much easier for everybody involved yes absolutely Oh, Cassie, this is amazing. Thank you so much for all the wisdom, I was going to say shells, um, no, wisdom gems, pearls of wisdom. That's what it was. 
<laughs> all of the pearls of wisdom that you had to share with us today. And there is so much that we can take away from this. So first of all, thank you. I would love to know where can people go to connect with you, potentially apply to your certification, if it opens up again, when it's opening up again, um, maybe work with you one-on-one, follow you on social, just tell us all the places. <laughs> tell, tell you all the places. The very best place you can connect with me is on Instagram. Um, and it's just at Cassie Ryder. And um, if you're interested in a certification program, I have a wait list going. We're starting again in at the end of September, actually beginning of October. Um, other than that, if you're somebody who is a coach and you're like, uh, where do I even start? And you need some help getting started. You can also follow me on Instagram and just drop into my DMs and I, I shouldn't say drop into my DMs. I hate that, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Send me a direct message via Instagram. Uh, that's the easiest place to communicate with me. And um, yeah, I'm here to serve and help. And hopefully there's some good content on there that can help you if you're not quite sure where to get started. Oh yeah, your your content is really good because like, and I'm not saying that just because I'm like, we're friends. I never say anything for the sake of it. But every time I come across a post of yours, especially if it's about, you know, group group programs and dynamics, I'm like, it really stops me and makes me think, oh, have I done this though? (laughs) So this really (laughs) reflective post. So um, highly recommend everyone to go and follow Kathy. So I'll pop all of those links into the show notes. Awesome. All right. So I've got two final questions before I let you go on your merry way. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. Number one is what makes you a quiet rebel? I feel like the thing that makes me quite rebel is that I can, I have the ability to kind of find the thing that's missing mm-hmm. and start advocating for it. So in the yeah. context of our discussion here, we have a lot of focus on marketing in the online business world. We need to shift. We need to shift. It's like, it's kind of like we've gone so far one way. We need to go whoosh the other way and start looking at our programs really in depth. And I really like, that's my movement right now that I'm really in on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm not necessarily quiet though about it. <laughs> I, tend, I tend to be loud about it. Um, but my, I guess the quietness would be, I, I feel like I want to train people to kind of infiltrate <laughs> the online market, right? like like go my, my little spies go <laughs> go and make a change I know what you mean because I'm doing the exact same thing with my own certification exactly, and I'm, infil- right? I'm infiltrating the podcast guesting industry with my well-trained peeps so <laughs> yes yes I love it all right and my final question to you Cassie is this so my lovelies if you're at this point you know what's going to happen next when you hear the sound It means it's time for a fact of the day. So, Cassie, you are in our, I don't like calling it hot seat, but warm chair sounds a bit awkward as well. You are our, <laughs> you're the person in the spot. <laughs> you are the person in our spotlight today as our guest. So what is one weird fact or a fun story about you that no one else can really find on the internet? Um, I mean, I'm sure if you Googled me, you could probably find this somewhere, but I haven't shared this a lot. Um, I am from the state of Montana. If you're from outside of the United States, that is a state that when I graduated from high school, there were less than a million people in the entire state and more cows than people. So very small state. Okay. More cows than people. There it is. And um, in the year 2000, when I graduated from high school, 
I, along with my debate partner, Sarah, who's amazing, and we're still friends, we were the year 2000 state of Montana policy debate champions. Oh, okay. We're in the presence of a champion here. (laughs) (laughs) It's like literally the only thing I've ever won making. (laughs) I have my year nine second place poetry contest, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Oh, goodness. Okay. So you said that we can find that on Google. (laughs) I mean, I guess you could find that on Google. If you really wanted to Google me, I think it might come up. Maybe. Interesting. I feel like it should be a challenge for us. <laughs> it won't come up under Cassie Ryder, though, because oh. I wasn't writer then. Oh, okay. Okay. You have to know my maiden name. Oh, that we do not know. Darn. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so for everyone who knows Cassie Ryder, unless we know her maiden name, we can't find that on the internet. So touche. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Cassie, for coming onto the podcast today. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. And so my lovely, there we have it. So everything that we mentioned in today's interview will be popped into the show notes. So be sure to head for that link. And if you haven't done so already, I would so love it if you could subscribe to this podcast because that way you don't miss a single episode and another conscious conversation. And of course, if you feel cool too, I would so appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review because that really helps other quiet ripples find us. Oh my goodness. Okay, another great episode. And so I will be back same place, same time next week for another episode of the Choir Rebels podcast. So until then, my lovely, do take care and bye for now.